continuing on our journey in Matthew 26. We're about uh, a fourth of the way done in this chapter. So if you want to open to Matthew 26, we'll be looking at verses 17 to 30 today, particularly Jesus celebrating the Passover with his disciples and Jesus instituting and beginning the Lord's Supper. So Matthew 17 to 30, I'll go ahead and read the first 14 verses. Verse 17 of Matthew 26. Now on the first day of the feast of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying to him, where do you want us to prepare for you to eat Passover? And he said, go into the city for a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. Now when evening had come, he sat down with the twelve. Now as they were eating, he said, Assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were exceedingly sorrowful, and each of them began to say to him, Lord, is it I? And he said, He who dipped his hand with me in this dish will betray me. The Son of Man indeed goes, uh, goes just as it is written of him, But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Then Judas, who was betraying him, answered and said, Rabbi, is it I? And he said to him, You have said it. Verse 26. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed it, and broke it. And he gave it to the disciples and said, Take eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So as we see here, as we continue on in Matthew 26, now we have Jesus and his disciples beginning to celebrate the Passover. This is really the accumulation, the last days of Jesus here on earth before he is crucified, buried, and then resurrected. We have here in verse 17, the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The Feast of Unleavened Bread symbolized the removal of sin in the life of a Jewish believer. Verse, seven, or, uh, verse 17, my note in my Bible says, The day of preparation for Passover, presumably 14 Nisan, which is the first month of the Jewish calendar, Jesus celebrated Passover that evening. And then 15 Nisan, which was the next day, and was crucified the next afternoon. Calvin understood, and this is John Calvin, his interpretation of of what this uh, event is. Calvin understood Preparation Day to be the day before Passover and argued that the Jews, according to some traditions, combined the Passover with the weekly Sabbath. So there is a little debate of when exactly this Passover feast and the institution of the Lord's Supper was. Was it the day before Passover or was it on Passover? And Calvin and some of the other commentators had a different uh, viewpoint of when that actually was, but that's kind of just getting too deep into the weeds for our purposes here. And that what Passover was, of course, 
is remembrance for when the angel of death passed over the firstborn when the children of Egypt, uh, the children of Israel were in Egypt, and when God delivered the children of Israel from slavery. So we have kind of uh, the same name, the Feast of Unleavened Bread and also the Passover. And at this time period, both these holidays were combined into one. The Passover meal fell on the first day of the feast, that is when the lamb was killed and eaten. And after that feast, the next seven days, Jews would only eat unleavened bread. The reason that they would only eat unleavened bread was to remember their quick departure from Egypt and also the removal of sin, having no leaven, the removal of sin from the people of Israel and having no leaven in the bread. That's why they would eat unleavened bread. Uh, Kind of going on with the uh, differences of these two days, a passage I read uh, from Ligonier Ministries, they had a very helpful article. Let me go ahead and read this paragraph. And uh, this kind of just shows the debate of between when exactly this time period was. Day 14 of the Jewish month of Nisan is the day of preparation for the Passover, of which the lambs are uh, slaughtered at twilight, which is in Exodus 12, 5 and 6. That's the commandment. The sacrifice occurs in the afternoon, which is the end of the day. Uh, The Jews considered the setting of the sun as the beginning of a new day. 15 Nisan, which begins at sundown immediately following, following the afternoon, the lambs are killed is the actual feast day. So when the sun goes down, the Jews consider that to be the end of the day. And then when it goes completely down, they consider that the beginning of a new day. And that's when the actual feast starts. So here's kind of the debate here. Some scholars believe Jesus dies as the lambs are being slaughtered on the 14th of Nisan, in which case our Lord and his disciples eat the Passover one day in advance of when actually Passover was. Others say that Christ and his followers follow the traditional schedule, meaning that Jesus dies on the 15th Nisan, a day after the lambs are sacrificed. Either way, the Last Supper is a Passover meal, which will help us interpret the meaning properly for our, as our study progresses. So again, as there's a little confusion, it's not exactly sure when exactly Jesus and his disciples celebrated the Passover. <clears throat> Excuse me, the Passover. It could have been a day in advance, or it could have been on Passover. There's not an exact date in reference in Scripture of to when it was. But I don't think that necessarily has any consequence of what we believe it's just uh, not having the whole entire details of, uh, of, of the Passover. So the disciples in Christ are going to celebrate the Passover meal we see in verse 17. Verse 18, Jesus said to them, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. Now, Mark and Luke tell us who this man is. The man that the disciples are going to look for is a man with a jar of water, a pitcher of water. And kind of interesting uh, to note here um, that carrying water usually was a woman's task in that time period. So the individual that they were looking for may have been a servant of the individual uh, whose house they were going to celebrate the Last Supper in, in their upper room. Uh, MacArthur, as to the way Jesus instructs his disciples to go and search for this man 
is uh, kind of secretive. The disciples had no idea where they were going to do. It appears that Jesus set this up beforehand. And MacArthur, John MacArthur in his commentaries, makes a point here that Christ may have previously set up this rendezvous without the disciples' knowledge because the times were precarious. Meaning, if you remember a couple chapters uh, before this, Jesus' life is continually sought after. The chief priest and the elders of Israel are continuously trying to find Jesus. And time and again we see Jesus saying, my time is not at hand. So he goes out of the city into the countryside to kind of escape just the rough and rowdy crowd. So the point here is that Jesus may have set up this rendezvous with this gentleman in his house beforehand without any of the disciples knowing. And also we have to keep in mind here that just previous to this in verse 14 and 16, Judas has already agreed to betray, or, uh, betray Christ. So if Jesus had told the disciples ahead of time where they were going to go, it's quite possibly that Judas would have known and would have you know, had the chief priests and the elders waiting at this house with the armed guards to take Christ away. But we know in the sovereignty of God and his control over everything that that was not the case. That Jesus' purpose was to celebrate the Last Supper and the Passover before he was taken away. So Jesus appears to make arrangements for this Last Supper in secret between him and this individual in the house. Now, I want to pay attention here to five words in this verse 18 because I think that they are of, of everlasting consequence. My time is at hand. My time is at hand. In the last couple of weeks, we have discussed how Jesus, is, as God, is perpetually setting things in motion where he's, uh, the, the chief priests and elders try to catch him, he escapes. They, they, you know, they try to set him in a snare, he escapes, or, or he flees, or he goes away. But I think we have to understand what these five words mean. My time is at hand. This is the God-man, Jesus Christ, allowing the sinful men, Judas, the chief priest and the elders, to finally do what's in their hearts. He is giving them permission. He is allowing them, at his appointed time, to take him away, to beat him, and to crucify him. These words right here, as, as we discussed a couple weeks ago, really, we're all started in Genesis 3.15, where God tells Adam and Eve that, you know, the serpent will bruise the deliverer's heel, but he will crush his head. From the thousands of years prior to this very point, my dad used a good illustration of a funnel. You know, from the time of creation, it's a whole entire theology, it's kind of difficult to see where it's going. You know, if Adam and Eve had no idea what was going to happen, but as we continue on in the Old Testament, it gets closer and closer. You have Moses, then you have the prophets, then you have the building of the temple, then you have the destruction of the temple, until you get to this focal point when Jesus Christ is born, and we begin to understand and see what's going to happen. And then, as Jesus says, my time is at hand, from the thousands of years prior to that, we have this critical point in all of human history where Jesus Christ, the God-man, came to die and to save the sins of his people. That is history. You know, we can take the founding of Rome in our own country, how consequential that was in Athens, you know, D-Day and in 1776. These are all great points in history, all critical points, but they pale in comparison to what happened 
here when Jesus says, my time is at hand. When the God-man gave himself over to be crucified. That's history. Not only is it past history, but as we'll see here with the institution of the Lord's Supper, it's future history. It's future glory. All things are pivotal around this point. Actually, the, uh, I, I, I enjoy military history and a word that the Germans used, and you'll, you won't find this in any theological uh, dictionary, so it won't be quizzed on you, but they use this interesting word. It's called Schwerpunkt, S-C-H-W-E-R-P-U-N-K-T. And really what it means, it, it means the focal point of battle, where the point of decision is going to happen. And I think that's exactly what we see here, of Jesus saying, my time is at hand. This is the focal point of history. This is the critical area in which all things have come together when Jesus Christ will die for the sins of his people. Again, you won't hear anyone say that in a theological context. I just thought it was a very helpful definition, at least to me. Then verse 19, so the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. So it appears that some of the disciples went out, found this gentleman, found the upper room, came back, told Jesus, everything was clear, and then they go to the upper room. And uh, before I continue in verse 20, if anyone has any comments or questions, you know, you can, you can say them now. Yeah, and that's, that's definitely a possibility, too, that this individual carrying the pitcher of water, that this was just the sovereign command of God saying, show, show God and his disciples to this upper room so they can celebrate Passover. So that's definitely a possibility, too. Um, but verse 20, we have the disciples. When evening had come, he sat down with the twelve. Sat down with the twelve. Now, I think, uh, who was it, Da Vinci that, that painted the picture of the upper room with the disciples? The famous upper room? I'm not a classical art history, you know, guru, but I think it was him. But you have the picture of Jesus sitting with his disciples, you know, obviously Christ in the middle, and the disciples, six on one side, six on the other, sitting at a table. Well, actually, that's not the way that these individuals, that Christ and his disciples sat down at table. In the ancient Near East, Really how they usually reclined at table was, is they sat on cushions of about three to four people. I won't demonstrate how they sat down, but how they sat down is they obviously got down on their, on their hip or on their butt cheek. They put down their left arm, and then they put their legs behind them. That's how they sat down. And if you remember when the Apostle John describes it in, in, uh, in John in his epistle, where he says that, the disciple whom Jesus loved leaned into his bosom. It makes a lot more sense how it was easier if John's sitting right here for him to put his head in the bosom of Christ if they're kind of reclined, if they're kind of 
leaning to the side. It wasn't that they were sitting in a chair. And also, think how much easier it is to wash someone's feet if the feet are sitting out back here. You know, if the disciples had their feet underneath the table, you know, Jesus would have had to, you know, have them move out, have them turn around. That appears to be not the case. When he washed their feet, it's because their feet were already out. They didn't have to make any moves. So they were reclining at the table. Just an interesting fact, um, you know, it's uh, not theological by any stretch of the imagination, but uh, just to kind of help us better understand what the disciples and what Jesus are doing here at this time. And then verse 21, Jesus, again, making a prediction. Verse 21, now as they were eating, he said, Assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. One of you will betray me. As we already see in the context here of this chapter, we already know who it is. You know, we have the benefit of hindsight being 2020. We know that the individual who betrays Christ, excuse me, is Judas. Now, what's interesting thing here is verse 22. I find this absolutely fascinating. The great apostles, the apostle John and the apostle Peter and the rest of the disciples, and they were exceedingly sorrowful. And each of them began to say to him, Lord, is it I? Am I the one that's going to betray you? You know, you have to think to yourself, all of this time, Peter, how many times did he confirm, you know, the deity of Jesus Christ? You no, know, you are the Christ, the Apostle John, all of these individuals. But I again think here that this demonstrates that these individuals were men just like you and I are. Just as we have our doubts, I think each and, us, each and every one of us has our doubts about our faith each and every day. And even the great disciples doubted and said, my goodness, am I going to be the one to betray Christ? In verse 23, Jesus gives the identity of who this individual is, who is going to betray him. And he answered and said, he who dipped his hand with me in this dish will betray me. As we talked about last week, the fulfillment of all of the prophecies in the Old Testament of Jesus being betrayed by this betrayer. We again have Psalm 41.9, which I quoted last week. Even my close friend, in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Presumably this is David, looking forward through the Holy Spirit, and Jesus Christ fulfilling this, and, and Judas fulfilling this through his act of betrayal. And verse 24 Jesus says, the Son of Man indeed goes just as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Uh, as I just said, as we saw last week, all the scriptures proclaiming the coming and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ at this time are actively being fulfilled. Let me go ahead real quick. You don't have to turn there. Luke twenty two twenty two, and uh, 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 Luke uses this in a different manner. I like this, what he writes here. And truly the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. I like that word determined here. Determined in eternity past, set in stone. The prophecies of the Old Testament are actively coming together, determined ahead of time. And I want to take a moment here and look at this word, woe. 
Jesus proclaims a woe in Matthew 18.6 to those who cause one of his little children to stumble. In fact, we see there that Jesus says he pronounces that it would be better if that individual were thrown into the depths of the sea with a millstone hung around their neck than to cause one of Jesus Christ's little children, little followers, to stumble. It's presumed that the sinner who causes one of Christ's little ones to stumble, the best thing that they could possibly do is die. But I was kind of thinking along those lines is that Jesus didn't say for those individuals who caused one of his little ones to stumble, they at least lived. Jesus didn't go back and say it would have been better for you not to have been born. But what we notice here, the severity of the betrayer of Jesus Christ, of Judas, Jesus goes a step further. And what does he say? Christ here is saying that the man who will betray him, that is the Son of God, that it would have been better for him not to have been born than to face the punishment that he will receive in the next life for betraying the Son of God. Think of that. The individuals who betray or who cause one of Christ's little disciples to stumble, yes, it's better for them to die than to continue on doing that. But for Judas' sake, it would have been better for him not to have even been born than to betray Jesus Christ, the Son of God, for the punishment that he will face in the next life for what he has done. Think about that. That is absolutely incredible to think about. Verse 25, Then Judas, who was betraying him, answered and said, Rabbi, is it I? This is just kind of interesting. What is Judas? Judas already knows. He's already betrayed Jesus. But kind of to blend in, as the rest of the disciples are saying, is it I? Judas, being a scoundrel that he is, being the chameleon that he is, saying, Lord, is it I? And what happens? He said to him, Jesus said to him, you have said it. Jesus confirms who his betrayer is. And as we close out this, this portion of uh, the text, Matthew Pohl, in his commentary, he was a Puritan commentator who lived about 1650 to uh, 1700. I really enjoy what he said here. A text worthy of their study, who will not understand how God should decree to permit sin and make a sinful act as to the event necessary without being the author of sin. As to our Savior's death, God had determined it, foretold it, it was necessary to be, but yet Satan put the evil motion into the heart of Judas, and Judas acted freely in doing what he did. And I won't comment on that, but I think that just goes to show the the mystery that we have as, as human beings with a finite mind, understanding how God truly does work everything together for good. But what we do know is he never, ever violates the will of a sinful creature. Judas did exactly what Judas wanted to do. That is to sell out Christ for 30 pieces of silver. But yet what do we know is that is all under the divine sovereign hand of a holy God. And as we begin here, the Last Supper, if anyone has any comments or questions of those verses, go ahead and please say it now.
exactly. And I, there's a lot of mystery. A lot of mystery. I even think in heaven we won't fully understand. You know? Pat. Well, I guess kind of in a in a way where you ask a question, it can I think it can be a negative. Is it I? Well, surely it's not me. In, in both ways, you can deny it by saying, "Is it I?" You're saying you don't know if it is you or not. But by saying, "Surely it's not I," you're asking the question, "Surely it's not me." I think there's there could be a play on words there. I do know the New American Standard, uh, the NASV. It is, from what I understand a more rough, accurate translation of the original Greek. So that may be a better instance of of asking, uh, of Judas asking. That may be a better translation from the Greek. Yeah, that's just kind of interesting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Either way, he's denying it. Yeah. He's denying that, that he's the traitor. And uh, very, very good comments here. And as we have uh, just uh, some some moments left, I, I want to go through the Lord's Supper. And, you know, as usual in a class like this, you can't dive into the depths that you really want to with the Lord's Supper. You just have to pick a couple points. And as you'll see on the board here, <clears throat> as we go through, I, I want to look at the different views of the Lord's Supper. But let me go ahead and uh, verses 26 to 29, let me just go ahead and read them real quick. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed, and broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So what I'm going to go, uh, I'm going to go through these verses, and I'm just going to point out some observations um, that I have in them, and feel free to chime in of anything that you see. So to begin, Christ is instituting the Lord's Supper during Passover. This here symbolizes the ending of the Old Covenant, that is the Mosaic Covenant, with an inauguration uh, with a sacrifice of that of the Lamb. So we have the sacrifice of the Lamb of the Passover, And now we see here, as it will be fulfilled a few days later, Jesus Christ is instituting the new covenant between his people of the sacrifice of the true lamb. As Revelation 13, 8 said, the lamb slain before the foundation of the world, Jesus Christ being that lamb, and with an even greater permanent sacrifice. So the Mosaic covenant was going to end eventually. If you look back at the Old Testament, it was imperfect. You know, the blood of bulls and goats does not take away sins. It just looked forward to what is happening. So we have the end of the Passover, and now Jesus Christ instituting this new covenant between him and his people, the Last Supper. So just a couple um, observances that I had uh, of these five verses. Jesus said, blessed, give thanks. In verse 26, he blessed the bread, broke it, and gave thanks. I think it's an important 
of asking God to bless all things and to give thanks for everything that we eat. And we do. Interestingly, in verse 27, Jesus said, Then he took the cup and gave thanks, gave it to them, saying, Drink from it. Notice these three words, all of you. All of you. Who does that include? Judas. As my uncle just said a moment before, that he, Judas, was, um, uh, had, had his feet washed. And then Judas here is uh, in the uh, presence of Christ in the um, Lord's Supper. I think that's correct. He didn't flee from the room, did he? No, he was still in the presence of the Lord's Supper. Okay. I just thought of that. I didn't, che- I didn't double check that uh, when I was studying. But nonetheless, during the majority of this time, Judas is here. And then what we know also from Luke is that Satan had entered Judas. So interestingly enough, Satan, for the majority of this, is in the presence of Christ during this intimate fellowship that he has with his disciples. Then what does Jesus say in verse 28? New covenant, establishing a new covenant with the people of God. Then we continue on. In verse 28, for many, for the remission of sins. That is good, good news. This is a remembrance for the forgiveness, the removal, the remission of sins for the people of God. In verse 29, Jesus says, But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Now, as I was doing just a little background uh, study in this verse, there is a, a little debate of what exactly this means. And we have in Acts 10, 40 to 41, you don't have to turn there, I'll just read it real quick, where I believe is Peter saying, God raised him up on the third day and granted that he become visible, not to all the people, but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God, that is, to us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. So this verse 29 of Jesus could simply just be saying that after I raise, after I'm raised from the dead, I will eat and drink with you again. And we also see in Luke 24:30, after he had been risen from the dead, when he had reclined at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it, and breaking it, he began giving it to them. Jesus Christ, after he'd been risen from the dead, ate with his disciples. But I think also, more importantly, is that we see in verse 29, I think a promise of Jesus Christ here to his disciples and also to us, that this last supper, this communion, yes, it's a look back for us to remember Jesus Christ and his sacrifice on the cross. But I think just importantly, it's a remembrance for us to look to the future, the future hope of Christ coming again. And I think we can take down the context here of Jesus saying, until that day when I drink it with you in my Father's kingdom, to celebrate the Lord's Supper until I come to get you and take you to my Father's kingdom. That's a hope for us. And then let me finish up verse 30 here, then I'll turn my attention for just a couple minutes to the board. And verse 30, Jesus said, And when he had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Uh, Presumably they sung psalm or psalms, multiple of them, from one, uh, Psalm 113 to 118, 
also called the Hallel, Hallel. They were sung to close out the Passover meal. So again, we see a very similar circumstance here between communion and Passover, Jesus and his disciples singing these five psalms right here. So what I wanted to do is the Last Supper, especially in the history of the church and even in our own day, is a very controversial subject of to how we're supposed to receive the Lord's Supper, what is in the Lord's Supper, and how you know it, it affects our spiritual lives. So I wrote up on the board, I'm sure many of you have probably heard of these words, but you may not be exactly familiar with what they are. But the first one is this is the Roman Catholic doctrine of communion, of the, uh, the Lord's Supper, called transubstantiation. So really, transubstantiation is meaning that the, the, uh, the cup and also the bread are actually the body of Christ. And as we'll see here, they kind of split some hairs. But really, this doctrine was developed between about 800 A.D. and about 1200 A.D. There were some uh, bishops and, and some individuals who really started to formulate this doctrine. And then the Fourth Lateran Council in 1215 A.D., the Roman Catholic uh, Church affirmed this doctrine of transubstantiation. And really a big influence of that was um, Thomas Aquinas. He really helped and affirmed this doctrine of transubstantiation. But let me go ahead and read uh, from a Roman Catholic uh, source. I think it was one of their catechisms. And this is what they say. His body and blood are truly contained in the sacrament of the altar under the forms of bread and wine. The bread and the wine having been changed in substance by God's power into his body and blood, so that in order to achieve this mystery of unity, we receive from God what he received from us. And the way they take this is that when Jesus says in verse 26, take, eat, this is my body. They take it literally that this is my body. And you have through the process, the the priestly process, where once the priest consecrates the bread, that's when it is changed into the body and the blood of Christ. Now, I did read a couple uh, rebuffs on this doctrine. I just thought this was kind of funny. I'll point it out where uh, you have people with like celiac disease, with uh, gluten allergies. And, you know, they said, well, if it was turned into the body of Christ, then why is it that people who have the celiac disease, they still have a difficult time digesting the, <laughs> the wafer? And really, the Roman Catholics, uh, what they did to rebuttal this is that they said, yes, it turns into the body and the blood of Christ, but listen here, the accidents, that is the incidental properties of the bread and the wine, remain the same. Rome also teaches that the Eucharist is a propitiatory sacrifice. In fact, the same sacrifice Christ offered on the cross. The Eucharist sacrifice is offered for the sins of the living and of the dead. That was Keith Matheson. He's an associate of Ligonier. But what, really, they kind of split hairs and they, they quote, and we don't have enough time to go into it, but they use uh, Aristotle and just like his basic properties where, yes, it's the bread and the blood of Jesus Christ, but the properties stay the same. The underlying properties stay the same. But it is transformed into the body and the blood of Christ. And I think there is some mystery there that they, they allow of how it's actually turned into the body and the blood of Christ. But they actually do believe that it is the body and the blood of Christ. Now, an interesting kind of rebuttal there is, you know, that's actively eating someone. 
Is that not cannibalism? Now, the Roman Catholics, they wouldn't say that. They would kind of be infuriated that you would say that, but I think that's a logical conclusion of what, uh, what their doctrine is. <clears throat> and real quick, let me read this uh, Catholic catechism. This is another one. Finally, to compromise all the advantages and blessings of this sacrament in one word, it must be taught that the Holy Eucharist is the most efficacious towards the attainment of eternal glory. For it is written that he that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath everlasting life, and I will raise him up on the last day. That is to say, by the grace of this sacrament, men enjoy the greatest peace and tranquility of consciousness during the present life. And listen here. And when the hour of departing from this world shall have arrived, like Elias, who in the strength of bread baked on the hearth, walked to Horeb, the mount of God, they too, invigorated by the strengthening influence of this heavenly food, will ascend into unfading glory and bliss. So the Roman Catholics, man, they take the sacraments of, of the Lord's Supper to a whole other level. I would completely disagree with it. The rest, three, uh, the rest of these three here we'll see just briefly are nowhere near of transubstantiation actually becoming the body and the blood of Christ. Now, consubstantiation, this is what Luther believed, although he apparently never called it consubstantiation, but this is a couple steps below transubstantiation. Consubstantiation is the view that the bread and wine of communion, the Lord's Supper, are spiritually the flesh and the blood of Jesus, yet the bread and wine are still actually only bread and wine. So Luther would say that Well, yes, the bread and the wine are not actually turned into the body of Christ, but it's spiritually the body of Christ. Now, one difficult thing about that is Jesus Christ, the God man, as he sits on the right hand of God, he in his his, uh, uh, earthly uh, man uh, form, he's not omnipresent. When Jesus was on the earth, he was just in one place at one time. So to say that he's spiritually there in the communion would mean that Jesus Christ, man, is omnipresent, which is very difficult to wrap your head around how that can be the case. And then, uh, just real quick, regarding the communion, Luther contended for the real physical presence of Christ with the bread and wine. In his small catechism, the body and the blood are described as being given under the bread and wine. So that's what the Lutherans would end up saying. It, It was under the bread and wine. So it actually wasn't the body of Christ, but it was pretty darn close to it. And uh, I have some more to say, but just for the sake of time, the one minute I have left, let me say what John Calvin believed. Uh, John Calvin believed that the bread and the blood were just that. But through the giving and taking of communion, the Holy Spirit enhances our hearts or gives us a greater sense of understanding while taking the communion. So he's a level underneath John or, uh, Martin Luther. And then the fourth point is Ulrich Zwingli, who was another reformer in the time of Luther and Calvin. He said, communion is merely a symbolic act given to us by our Lord to remember him. And interestingly enough, Luther and Zwingli on multiple occasions had present, or, uh, in the presence of one another, multiple arguments and debates with one another. And honestly speaking, Luther had a more difficult time with Zwingli's view on communion than he did on the Roman Catholic view on communion. Because he said by taking it merely as symbolism is completely destroying what the Lord's Supper represents. 
So that's just a brief history. Uh, it's 10.15. I don't mean to hold you any longer. If you have anything else to add, see me afterwards, and uh, I'd be glad to talk with you more about it. Thanks for paying attention.